Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, CNN reports racism in the Columbus Police Department among members of the force. The defendants in the Ahmaud Arbery case are denied bail after a two-day bond hearing. And one of the officers in the Breonna Taylor case has been sued for an unrelated incident involving sexual assault of a law student. In segment two, as promised, we'll be exploring Portugal's holistic approach to drug addiction that may give us some insight into what we can expect from Oregon's new experiment in drug decriminalization. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify, and follow us on all of our social media channels. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week CNN's report on the Columbus Police Department releasing an article exposing racism against Black police officers in, within the force? Yeah, I mean, just listening to your list of what we're talking about just makes my head spin. And it's it's very disturbing to hear about what's happening with racism within the police force. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Three separate discrimination lawsuits have been filed in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio against the Columbus Police Department by current or former black officers. A fourth officer suit that was based on retaliation for reporting discrimination against one of the plaintiffs was recently settled by the city council approving a $475,000 settlement. The suits are rooted in Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination in employment based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, and now sexual orientation and gender identity. So these are lawsuits um, really going to the heart of systemic racism in the Columbus Police Department. Oh my gosh. And I hate to ask this kind of question because it's terrible that there's more than one type of discrimination, but what type of discrimination are we talking about here? So there are these, these lawsuits are just replete with disturbing stories. Um, one that I think is, is incredibly egregious is about Eric Cornette. Um, Officer Cornette is a 23 year veteran of the force. He's also um, a veteran who of the United States Air Force attaining the rank of Master Sergeant. Um, he was run off the job and out of Columbus entirely because he received death threats from a fellow officer. This officer even went so far as to say he had everything he needs to take care of the officer, including access to police audio and video room evidence lockers in order to delete the evidence of the murder. The true betrayal of Mr. Cornette, however, may be in the fact that when he reported the threat, the officer that threatened him was neither prosecuted nor removed from the force. Erica, I'm outraged by the Columbus Police Department's callous ignoring of these allegations. I have had clients lose their jobs their marriages, their entire lives for making threats of this nature and threats nowhere near this serious. This bully officer uh, is still on the force to this day, 
thanks in large part to the police union, a topic that we come back to over and over again when we're talking about the systemic racism in America's law enforcement. Um, this officer was also accused of stealing time and using police equipment for personal use. So it's not only a matter of racism, but it's a matter of covering up all of the other misconduct that these racist officers um, have engaged in, in order to keep them on the force. Because having racist officers on the force is more important than following the rules. Other allegations in the suits include verbal abuse and derogatory language, um, withholding new equipment from black officers or issuing condition, e issuing equipment that's in the worst possible condition, um, retaliation from administrative officials for reporting uh, racist acts, including write-ups against them, suspensions, and threats of further punishment for pursuing complaints. Um, and last but not least, of course, assigning low-level work to highly qualified officers. So this is a situation of racism and discrimination that goes from interpersonal officer interactions all the way up to the highest levels of police administration and management. This is unbelievable. And I can understand why you're enraged. I'm incredibly angry as well to hear about this. I mean, we really place our trust in this institution and we, we trust them to protect us and we, we trust them to fight against racism, not have it within their own institution. So I, I'm just wondering if these lawsuits, I mean, while I'm very glad that somebody is taking a closer look at this and hopefully that justice will be done, um, will these lawsuits actually address um, some of the issues that we've talked about with systemic racism? And in fact, it's even been acknowledged by Mayor Ginther. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best. What do you think? So contrary to uh, the, the internet memes uh, about lawsuits and civil rights lawsuits in particular. These sorts of suits are not just about money. Money is a significant portion of them. But more importantly, in many of these cases, the suits can produce consent agreements that require changes in the administrative procedures of the force, addressing the systemic racism that led to the suits in the first place. Now, unfortunately, even though Columbus has passed the new law, uh, the, the modification to the Columbus City Charter authorizing a civilian review board, the civilian review board will not be addressing these sorts of issues uh, because this involves the administrative procedures within the force rather than the actions of the police force against the public. The issues at the Columbus Police Department go so much deeper, though and they have to be addressed by major policy reforms that need to start at the top with Mayor Ginther and move all the way down through the chief of police and through uh, officers, you know, ranking officers within the police department, um, including policy reforms and better training and education of officers. The, the culture of brutality and racism that thrives in the Columbus Police Department can only begin to be rooted out if the administration and the people in power are held accountable for their actions. And I hope this is a first step in, in moving that forward. I hope so too, for everyone's sake. And I'm glad that you are 
keeping on top of the situation and keeping us abreast of the changes and what's going on and you know, just really letting us know how we can help. Fighting the fake news is one of the major priorities of this podcast. Um, and keeping people informed is critical to the survival of our democracy. Erica, did you also see this week that the father and son charged with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery were denied bond after a two-day bond hearing? I did, and uh, I'm really curious how we got to this stage. So defense attorneys for the accused individuals filed a motion to modify the bond um, that was previously set in the case, arguing that the case involves the right of a private citizen to arrest another citizen. Now, the judge had previously denied bond for a third defendant in this case, and that's the individual who filmed the alleged murder and later leaked the video of the incident. Now, because the government opposed the motion, a hearing was held and witnesses were called. Um, evidence was presented by Zoom in this case because of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Wow. So what is the relevant evidence that we need to consider when we're thinking about this case? In a bond hearing, the court is generally going to hear two categories of evidence. Um, now, of course, every state has its own particularities, but for the most part, they're all very similar. Those universal questions are about guaranteeing the appearance of the defendant at future hearings and protecting the public from future crime by the defendant. The hearing in this case introduced a variety of very damaging evidence to the defense that were previously unknown to the public. Now, when you're arguing at a bond hearing that your alleged crime was not motivated by race, it opens the door for the government to introduce evidence that you are in fact motivated by racial motivations. And in this hearing, the government introduced evidence of a variety of racial slurs used by the defendants in both their text messaging history and social media posts. Um, the victim's family was also permitted to be heard and tearfully asked the judge to keep the alleged lynchers in custody. And that made for very powerful and damaging sound bites that will no doubt affect the jury pool in this case. Now, typically we want our clients to be out on bond pending trial. Uh, it is very difficult to prepare a case with your client in custody. It's very difficult to have regular meetings with your client. It's very difficult to have confidential meetings with the client. It's very difficult to prepare the client in the sense of gathering the client's story and educating the client on the process of both appearing in court and how to behave in the courtroom, as well as testifying um, to a jury eventually. I think the defense made a mistake in this case going with this route of evidence presentation, because what they've done now is uh, they, have, they have allowed the government to introduce evidence to the public and, and really skewed the jury pool. I think they're gonna have a very difficult time finding objective jurors when it comes time for trial of this case. Um, I, I'm sure the defense attorneys considered this, um, but I, I think it was an egregious mistake on their behalf to go with this avenue of, of you know, argument on, on the issue of bond. I mean, it's always interesting when you talk about 
strategy when it comes to trying a case and what they thought might be a good idea to bring up the fact that this was not racially motivated has now turned into the worst idea. And it's terrible to see how this has unfolded to go against the trial uh, for, the, for, for their client. And um, I'm really curious to see like what stood out to you about the evidence that came out during this hearing. Well, in particular, I think some of the most damaging evidence for the defense team was the revelation from the lead investigating detective at the scene. Now, he testified at the hearing that one of the defendants had claimed to be law enforcement and attempted to insert himself into the investigation, and the police on scene allowed it. What we can infer from that is this detective participated in that, or at a minimum, allowed that to happen. And the defendant claiming to be a police officer affected the investigation of the case on that local level. It's problematic because we expect police officers to perform like professionals, you know, the way they do on television, and consider every angle of the case in an objective manner and all the possibilities. It's clear from this officer's admissions at the bond hearing that he did not do that in this case. And it seems like none of the officers did. It really seems like there was a conspiracy from the first moment to find that these individuals had done nothing wrong. And then that's very problematic for the defense. Now, another egregious piece of evidence that came out was that one of the suspects called the local prosecuting attorney and asked for help and, and advice in how to respond to questioning, um, how to act during the investigation, um, and, and try to get tips on how to uh, shut down this investigation after he chose to hunt down Ahmad Arbery and, and shoot him on video. I think this really highlights how small town law enforcement covers for itself. It highlights how important local elections are. And I, I think it really drives home the point that it's critically important for everybody to get involved, stay involved, advocate, and report this type of, of malfeasance on a local level. Um, you know, too many people get involved when it comes to a presidential election or a senatorial election. And they really, they really shirk their responsibilities when it comes to electing the local prosecutor or electing the county sheriff. And we've talked on this podcast before about how important it is to stay involved and, and really research your elected officials from, uh, from the, you know, the, the city councils to your mayors, to your police chiefs, if that's an elected position, position in your area. Certainly county sheriffs across the nation are elected positions and DAs or prosecuting attorneys are elected positions. And in, in what we see in this case is all levels of law enforcement, both on the policing level and the attorney level, the prosecuting attorney level, willing to collaborate in order to cover for one of their own. I mean, it's, it's really, it's sad. And I'm really glad that the public stage is now filled with these types of cases so that change can come from it. And we can really see what's going on. I mean, I, I think that it's all 
going to be positive in the long run? I said years ago, more than a decade ago, that the advent of the personal recording device baked into all of our cellular phones was going to be the catalyst for real change in law enforcement. And we're seeing that more and more. Um, the ability of the average citizen to document in an objective manner what is going on on the streets has really given support to the allegations of minorities and you know, uh, economically depressed individuals across the nation. It's given support to what they've been saying is happening for really centuries. And speaking of things that have come up recently in the areas of racism in the police department, one of the three officers involved in the murder of Breonna Taylor has now been sued for sexual assault of a law enforcement, or I'm sorry, of a law student back in 2018. Did you see this story come out of Louisville, Erica? I did. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that someone that is already doing terrible things has done things in their past that are also terrible. And so, I mean, I don't want to assume that about anyone, but Typically, there is a pattern. Can a civil suit for sexual assault be filed if there wasn't a criminal case? Yes, civil suits and criminal charges are completely separate areas of the law. And a civil suit for sexual assault does not depend on a criminal conviction or even a criminal complaint to law enforcement. Civil suits can have shorter statutes of limitation than criminal charges. So just because a civil suit is filed does not preclude criminal charges coming down later. Uh, the criminal and civil worlds are completely separate and no civil judgment can affect a criminal charge or whether one is filed. And while a criminal conviction can include financial consequences like restitution, it does not guarantee civil damages and a separate lawsuit must be filed. This is how a criminal and a civil suit can be related to the same incident, but not be in violation of an individual's like double jeopardy rights, for instance. And that's very interesting. So wasn't the same officer already terminated from his job as a police officer? He was, um, and as a separate matter from his participation in the murder of Breonna Taylor, Brett Hankinson of the Louisville Police Department was fired this past June. He had a very long list of misconduct, um, but continued to be employed by the force. Once again, we see police unions sticking up for bad apples. Um, this is what convinced the chief of police to determine that he had an extreme indifference to the value of human life which is a quote directly from uh, Brett Hankinson's termination letter. This is one more example, Erica, of the need for reform for police oversight and reforms to the administrative process to really put some restrictions on the use of police unions when we're talking about police misconduct. Uh, these bargaining agreements must be negotiated by people who are objective 
you know, what we have right now are city officials negotiating with police unions and everybody involved has an interest in covering up and reducing the exposure of, um, of, of police liability. So the people who are negotiating against the police unions have the same interests at heart as the police unions. The unions don't want their officers suspended and the administration, the government in power doesn't wanna be sued for the police misconduct. So everybody involved has an interest in covering up misconduct. The, the effect of these bargaining agreements uh, really creates uh, an inability to root out and terminate officers who abuse their power and position for their own satisfaction. It's disappointing to see this over and over again. And it's also disappointing that these types of situations have to happen. We have to go through these long drawn out court processes and you know really shine a national light on this systemic racism and and educate people when it should have been obvious for for decades and i am happy that that is something that you could see coming um, i think that you're in the minority there well what we see over and over again is that the suits that actually come to the public light through the media or through uh, very large judgments or judgments that include modifications to administrative procedures are the ones that have the video evidence in support of them. So uh, that video evidence is, is always critical. And I would tell everybody out there listening to our show, record, record, record. I agree with you. And I hope that people do. And I think that they will. So Erica, let's move on to our main topic of discussion today, Oregon recently became the first state of our union to embrace decriminalization of all drugs as an approach to its drug addiction problem. Now, Portugal pioneered this strategy in 2001, and there are a plethora of lessons to be learned uh, from their successful addiction intervention programs. So let's get right into it. I was really excited to hear you mention this over the last couple of weeks, and it's here. We're finally going to talk about it, um, some of the positive results that are happening in Portugal. So yeah, let's, let's talk about and remind people what is decriminalization and what does it mean in the circumstances that we are talking about today? So decriminalization is the elimination of criminal penalties for low-level drug possession and consumption of illicit drugs. And it reclassifies these activities as administrative violations. What's really important to understand here are, are, are two aspects. First is that we're talking about low-level personal use. Decriminalization does nothing to change how drug cartels and drug dealers are prosecuted. Those crimes are still crimes. Those are still prosecuted and they still have significant penalties attached to them. The level of possession we're talking about here is, is for personal use and possession in large quantities is still illegal and punishable as, as any other uh, crime is. Secondly, 
even though we're talking about decriminalization, it doesn't mean that these individuals don't have any consequences. In Portugal, this means that a person who's found in possession of a personal use amount of drugs uh, is no longer arrested, but instead they're brought before a local commission comprised of an official from law enforcement, uh, some healthcare workers and social service representatives. The commission works to decide whether and to what extent that person is addicted to drugs and may refer that person to voluntary treatment, may order them to pay a fine, like a, in the same way that we have speeding tickets, or can impose other administrative sanctions. Um, so we're talking about you know, care and services for their family and their children. So while drug use and possession is no longer uh, triggering of criminal sanctions, it is still illegal. And that's what decriminalization is. This is not legalization of drugs. This is decriminalization. You know, think of it like this. If, if Ohio had previously said, well, if you get a speeding ticket, we're going to send you to jail for that on the first offense, right? And then converted it back to what we have now, which is, you know, it's a, it's a $150 fine uh, with escalating penalties up to and including suspension of your right to drive and remedial driving courses. Um, this, is, this is a very good analogy. I mean, I think it's a really great idea. And I'm really curious as to what types of results Portugal has seen from this new policy. So first and foremost, Portugal has not seen an increase in drug use. You know, all of the memes that we're seeing blasted around on the internet these days are, you know, well, let's go to, let's go to Oregon and everybody start using drugs and everybody in Oregon is going to start shooting up heroin and blowing cocaine all over the place. Well, that's just not the reality that we've seen in countries that have pursued this policy in the past. Portugal saw no increase in drug use other than that increase, which is in line with statistical predictions based on population growth and age. So the only additional growth that they've seen is because their population has both become younger and increased in volume. Uh, more importantly, maybe, it's reduced problematic drug use and adolescent drug use. Problematic drug use is that which uh, results in people becoming dependent, or as Portugal defines it, people who inject drugs. And those populations have seen a steady decline since 2003. Uh, a 2013 World Health Organization report actually said that countries with decriminalized systems have lower rates of monthly use than those who have punitive policies uh, for their drug addiction or their drug use policies. Portugal has seen fewer arrested and incarcerated people. Uh, that decline has been more than 60% since decriminalization. So fewer people in prison, fewer public dollars going to prisons. The rate of those referred to the Administrative com Commission has remained about steady, about six to 8,000 people yearly. Um, so there's been no overall increase in the number of people being caught for drug use. And notably, 80% of those cases who are review, uh, referred to the Administrative con con, uh, Commission have been deemed non-problematic and dismissed without any sanction. So these are people who you know, are recreationally using drugs um, and, and do not have an addiction problem. More people are receiving drug treatment. From 
1998 to 2011, the number of people in treatment increased 60%. And remember that treatment is voluntary. Nobody's forced to go like a person who is on probation here in America. Over 70% of those people who are referred are receiving opiate substitution therapy, often referred to as medically assisted treatment, um, and the most effective form of opioid treatment is that medically assisted opioid substitution therapy. Uh, just think about what this could do for our U.S. population that is struggling with opioid addiction. Portugal has seen a drastic reduction in the incidence of HIV and AIDS, um, up to 79% per year, year over year. There have been a drastic redu reduction in drug-induced deaths. Um, there were 80 in 2001 to just 16 in 2012. That's incredible. And of course, the reduction in the social costs of drug misuse. The per capita cost of drug use has reduced by 18% according to a 2015 study. And this includes things across the board. So we're talking about taxed services like social services or services that our taxes go to pay for like social services as well as costs to employers. So the number of, of people losing their jobs because of drug addiction has gone down significantly. Across the board, Portugal has seen major improvements as the result of their decriminalization policy. I mean, uh, this is just amazing. And it's, it's, I know you mentioned the memes and people like to, if, if anything we've learned from our, our recent elections and things going on in the news, people like to put things out there that are not proven just to stir the pot. And I feel like that happens a lot. Um, so, I mean, all of these are real facts that you're showing us today about how programs like this could actually help us here in America and save us a lot of money, as you mentioned, on throwing people in jail. And in fact, we really don't have a lot of room in the jails right now. When we're in the middle of a pandemic, we really don't want a lot of people in the jail system right now, That not people that you really haven't done anything crazy that they're going to be a threat to society so the improvements are amazing um, against battling addiction and saving lives how could this be implemented in the u.s to help us out in all of these areas well in order to implement it in the united states it's critical to note that it wasn't just the decriminalization that led to these societal improvements it was a huge expansion of treatment and harm reduction services, including access to sterile syringes, um, low threshold methadone maintenance therapy, and other medically assisted treatment programs. Think about the defund the police movement, moving money away from tanks and fully automatic weapons for police and into drug addiction treatment. Portugal succeeded because it created these necessary infrastructure pieces and made the financial investment in order to enable the policy to be successful and eliminate the barriers to accessing these vital services. It's what makes the holistic approach work. It addresses every part of the system and every need the human involved with the system has. The, the states that are the test kitchens of our nation and Oregon is the first, uh, will have to address these key infrastructure issues and they'll have to improve their social services um, by 
investing in drug addiction, by investing in social services, by investing in mental health services. And I think the first place we should look is our overworked law enforcement officers. Those are the people that should not be providing frontline services to drug addicted people. The people that are best capable of doing that are chemical dependency counselors. And they are a grossly underpaid segment of our population and we need more of them. So investing in infrastructure, investing in infrastructure, investing in infrastructure is how this can be implemented in the United States and save the American taxpayer millions of dollars a year. Well, I think that that's amazing insight into what we should do in the future. And I really hope that with the change of administration, that we see a lot more changes happening quickly and we can start seeing lives saved and money saved and just a better America in general. Absolutely, Erica. When, when we in my office implemented a holistic approach to our clients about 15 years ago, we saw a drastic reduction, not only in clients that were sent to prison at the outset, but a drastic reduction in clients who violated their probation. By staying on top of their treatment, by connecting them with addiction services early on in their case, we saw massive improvement time and time again in the outcomes of their cases and their lives in general. So that holistic approach works. And I hope our country sees how well it works in Oregon and starts adopting it coast to coast. Erica, I really thank you for joining me and participating in this discussion today. And I thank everybody out there for listening to our podcast and, and participating and, and following us. In order for you to stay informed about key issues in police and criminal injustice reform, uh, government accountability, and advancements in treatment and alternative options to incarcerating people who have drug addiction, check out the law office of brianjones.com or Look at our Facebook page, the law, uh, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at T-L-O-B-J. And we'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as an in-depth discussion of double jeopardy and how it applies under the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we separated, uh, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, with all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended.